Well, I'm going to ask uh, our speakers to come and join me up here on stage. Thank you for all of the questions. Uh, we, we received uh, a lot of them, and sadly, we're not going to be able to address all of them for a number of reasons. You can imagine just the sheer, sheer volume alone. Um, you know, we're, I realize we're standing right now between, or sitting between you and dinner, and uh, we'd be here quite late if we tried to address all of them. And then, you know, a lot of the questions that came in were situational or contextual of, in nature, and um, to answer them or at least give them the, you know, the, the weight that they deserve, we would just, we would need more information and more time. So, um, but that doesn't mean we don't want to answer them. And so if you submitted a question and you want an answer, and we're, we're not able to get to it tonight, will you, would you fill out, here's the bad news, we need you to fill out another card, put your name on it, drop it in the offering box, and one of our pastors will respond to your question, because we do want to respond to you, even if we're not able to tonight, okay? So, um, we're just going to jump right into it. We're, we're going to do our best to be done by 6 p.m., and uh, so maybe we'll start here. Could you maybe, and this, I'm, I'm going to throw this question out to both of you, though, um, What's the relationship between mental health and spiritual health? I could maybe say it a different way, but are they the same? Are they distinguishable? Do they overlap? Ed, maybe we could start with you. He's the expert on mental Let's, health. Uh, okay. <laughs> that was funny. No, it's uh, not. <laughs> <laughs> you so, talk. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, so let's start in the place of when we think about health in general. And I think health in general leads us to ask the question, I think it's unnecessary for us to divide um, mental health and spiritual health because we're talking about the wholeness of humanity. Uh, and when we think about true health, do we really ever achieve legitimate true health this side of heaven? I think the answer to that is in fullness, no. Uh, we're striving toward that, and I think the Spirit is helping us to accomplish uh, what it means to be moving in that direction. Um, but I think it becomes an unnecessary dichotomy when we try to split those two things, uh, because when we split those two things, uh, <clears throat> it forces us to look for answers that are outside of what's revealed to us in the Scriptures. And so, um, and I think it unnecessarily divides as if uh, life is... Uh, there are parts of life that are unspiritual. Uh, and I think that's a, a faulty way of seeing according to uh, the way the Bible reveals who we are as people and reality in general in describing uh, not just who we are, but what we experience. And the things that we battle, the things that we wrestle against, there's always this element to understand those things from a spiritual perspective, uh, from the unseen, if you will that we wrestle not against flesh and blood. So I think it becomes, um, we, we begin to build a false dichotomy <clears throat> that is that can be harmful in the way that we think about people. Uh, the only caveat that we see to that is we do see that, that there's, um, there's good wisdom in pursuing uh, physical health by paying attention to the body. Uh, but it seems to me that, that the aim that Paul has there in disciplining the body is for the purpose that it, it wouldn't be something that's a, a liability as we try to please God with the temple that we have. So 
Uh, even in that, we, we put it in its proper hierarchy, uh, but it's never disassociated from uh, allowing us to do what we're called to do in glorifying God, uh, and that is the pursuit of true health, which would encompass spiritual health. I'm not sure exactly where the question is coming from, but um, let me just one comment. If the question is coming from what is the what does the ordinary Christian life look like? What's the template for the Christian life, which you certainly address with the person of Christ? Uh, it seems to me the ordinary ordinary Christian life is is that we we wrestle in resting in Christ and trusting Him, also with loving each other, and then we see all this weirdness in our lives. You know, there's all this good in our life and there's all this strangeness in our life and that's, that's the ordinary Christian life. We just, we just find things that are peculiar and, and, um, and we have a God who, who seems to, he's, he, um, he's pleased to have eccentricities mm-hmm. in the Christian church. So. As Christians, at times, it can be confusing to think about troubled people, ourselves and others, through the lens of how the secular world diagnoses them, the labels that are they're given. Are those labels ever useful? Um, should we just ignore them completely, throw them out the door, ignore them? Um, can they be useful because they... Uh, at times do a very good job of describing uh, experience or behavior. Thoughts on that? I'll start and then I'd like to hear your thoughts. Um, yes, they can be useful. They help us to see things that we might not be able to see otherwise. They, they, they articulate experiences that we can have that, that sometimes can be difficult to identify. So they put them on the map. So, so in that sense, they, that's one reason they can be useful. I'm sure there are many others. The, but for us, there's always these, this two-step process. Okay, now that I've identified these, these troubling experiences and have appreciated that people have actually looked at these things and other people experience them, then that question, now how, how does Scripture come and take it over? That, that's, that's the more challenging one. And that's, so we, we do two things as Christians, not just, not just one. Yeah, I would agree. I think the short answer is absolutely yes. Um, the, the way we put flesh on that and the, uh, the way I think we understand that is uh, a natural man can see things. A natural man can understand things as they're unveiled in the natural world. And so when we think about a psychologist who's a secularist, I mean, he can understand, uh, which is what we have compiled really in the DSM. I think it's just misinterpreted to think that we, that, that, it's claiming cause when it's, when it's not. Uh, but in the DSM, what you have are descriptions, right? You have descriptions of human behavior. And those things have been put together in, uh, in the form of a syndrome to describe a collection of symptoms uh, that people experience when they're emotionally this way or that way. And so can a, can a natural man observe those? Yes. <clears throat> the difficulty is when we're putting those things together, uh, it's kind of like think, thinking about uh, when, we're, when we're painting a picture, well, when you paint a picture, because I don't paint, but when you paint a picture um, or you put a puzzle together, that's something we do for a Christmas tradition. We put puzzles together, and it's always interesting in, in a thousand-piece puzzle how somebody drops one and we lose it and we don't get to see the fullness of the, of the picture. Uh, 
And I think that's often what happens when a natural man is trying to describe the totality of humanity. So we can understand descriptions, behaviors, if you will, um, but in those descriptions, there are always pieces of the puzzle missing uh, that don't give us the full story. And uh, as, as Paul Tripp really has, has helped us understand, uh, as revelation receivers, we as humanity, uh, we don't stop with just simple descriptions. We're revelation receivers, and so with that, we just try to take the information that we have, we squeeze all that together with whatever might be missing categorically, and we just try to make meaning out of it. And that's essentially what I see happening in the natural world. And crossing into that line, which is what most psychologies then become, are trying to now make meaning of what they've described about humanity. Uh, that's where we start to really slide into some major problems. And so I would definitely distinguish, um, of course, uh, seculars can see natural things that happen, behaviors and that sort of thing. Uh, but what we have to be cautious about is the Bible sees and describes more to man than just what comes out on the outward. We have to pay very close attention to what gives meaning and animation to a man is what's underneath, which is talked about in terms of passions and desires and wants and, and so on in the scripture. Yeah. Our real concern is that, that a diagnostic term can, can, for various reasons, become partitioned from scripture. Mm -hmm. And we don't want anything in life to be partitioned from, from Scripture. We want, we want Scripture to the Word of Christ to come in, reach into whatever it might be, diagnosis or, or whatever. And, and as, as, it, as it brings that in, all of a sudden we see depths to it we would have never seen. That's, that's what I think that's our interest. Sure. So when you talk about the, the, just that idea of being partitioned from Scripture, what I appreciated in your lecture on depression, you talked about some, some other words that kind of move that word depression closer to the scriptures, kind of deconstructed into Bible terms. There's a lot of other diagnoses that um, I think for a lot of us, we struggle with, how do I get from here, let's say PTSD or OCD, can you give some examples of maybe a bridge of maybe to demystify it a little bit, but what are some Bible words that we could, that get us from the secular diagnosis into the scriptures and redefine it in biblical terms? Yeah, that's an important question. Let me, this, is, this sort of gets to your question. Um, PTSD. Um, you were just talking about this, I think, during lunch, mm -hmm. that, that we, have, we have a sense with suffering. The normal, normal suffering, it, it really hurts in the midst of it. When it's over, the next day it doesn't hurt as much, the next day it doesn't hurt as much. It sort of erodes over time, it has this half-life. And, and a year later, you don't really remember it, you don't feel it. That's the way we typically think about, about suffering. I had a broken leg one time, and, and, um, and it, was, it was in the call of duty. I was counseling with somebody. It's a long story, but it was a funny one. And I broke my leg, and, and it mended. It mended, and you know, everything's fine. And, but, so it's, it's just a broken leg. But the interesting thing to me is, is to this day, every time I hear the screech of brakes, I... I jump. I look behind me and wondering if the car is going to hit me. 
Now, it sort of sneaks into the present in some way, in, in, in relatively innocuous ways. The, and, and Dale, you were talking about this. The, the norm for suffering is that you experience certain sufferings. In next year, it feels like, it feels like it's more present than it was. Sometimes it feels like it gains power over time rather than loses power over time. And you were using the experience of PTSD and military where you were suggesting how can you not have ongoing repercussions from what it is that she went through. Now that's not quite using words that get it into scripture, but it is, it is sort of saying, of course, did you buy this myth that, suffer, that right way of suffering is it should gradually just decline over time and then you can move on to another suffering, and that declines over time. That's not the way life works. What that does is, I think, is it, it does, it, I think that is a kind of preparation. Now let's hear how God speaks to these kinds of sufferings. And then we can parse the sufferings, because some, some of the sufferings might be significant guilt because of things that they were done. Um, there can be all kinds of other versions of the suffering. Yeah, I, I would talk about the PTSD issue. I think what you're trying to do is help explain how the experiences that they, uh, that they went through and the experiences that they have now in the present, the way that this is affecting them in the present, I think you try to help them to, to see that the scripture's not foreign to that type of human experience. And so when we bring those descriptions of their emotions that they feel, the fears that they experience, maybe it's the guilt and the shame, those are the things underlying that they're wrestling with that, um, that really intensify flashbacks. They intensify relationships. They intensify sounds that a person might hear. And so with that, I'm trying to help them to see that the Bible speaks to the underlying issues such as the guilt and the shame and the fear and the, um, you know, and the, the brokenness that they experienced. And, um, and so the Bible really begins to speak in those directions. And I think sometimes what we, what we start to do is we try to look in the scriptures for the way the natural world describes it. And sometimes that can be, that can be difficult. We have, to, we have to see the way that um, they're describing their human experience now and then begin to associate how the scriptures unfold that experience. You know, in something like <coughs> OCD, um, the issue of identity, I think, is very important. I think the issue of self-control becomes something that's very important uh, in terms like that and what it is that we're disciplining, what it is that we're focused on. Um, the issue of priority in our life. Uh, scripturally speaking, there is a hierarchy of priority uh, that the Lord gives to us as to things that are important. So I think that begins to speak into all of those issues um, in how a person experiences certain struggles and, and phenomena like OCD or, or PTSD. Yeah. Here's another example. It's not quite getting to the words that sort of are Bible words. Um, I just lost it. Um, give me a second. When people talk about trauma, uh, I, think, I think when Christians oftentimes talk about trauma, the scripture is closed to trauma. And, and sometimes I've heard people say, well, yes, yeah, scripture speaks about hard things, but, but this is a different category of hardness. This is above and beyond the thing that scripture identifies. And, and what's, what's the way in the scripture there? Try it. Let's try it. Let's try it. And, and 
And let's, let's watch perhaps the suffering servant as the book of Isaiah unfolds the person of Christ. Let's look at the, the, last, the second half of the book of John and watch that suffering servant live as, as he go th- goes through trauma and, and miseries. So, so sometimes it's, it's not necessarily finding another word. It's saying, no, 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 no. Let's, let's put scripture to the test. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's see if it actually does speak um, to things that are more severe than we recognize. A lot of questions came in on medications. And can't ask all of them, so I'm going to try to consolidate them into one or two questions. And maybe that'll give us some jumping off points. But in general, psychotropic meds, SSRIs, are they good? Are they bad? Is there a place for them? Let's start there and we can uh, see where that takes us. I think about that from a couple different perspectives. One is, I, I think they're less helpful than, than suggested. And they help fewer people than advertised. But there's some people who seem to be significantly helped by them. And what do we say? We say, we're... We're all for misery. We're, for, we're all for the reduction of misery if we, can, if we can do that within the realm of wisdom. Mm-hmm. So, so for some people, it seems to help significantly. For others, not so much. Mm-hmm. I think there's kind of two layers to this discussion. Um, I'm certainly more cautious relative to psychotropic medication. Um, a lot of this has to do with some of the research that's happening now and my concern for us... Um, even in our medical pursuit, doing no harm. And what we see consistently with some of these medications is that um, it actually can increase in harm with some of the side effects and that sort of thing. So in that regard, I'm cautious. Uh, I do agree, however, when we think about the medical world that um, any type of suffering that we experience in human life, if we can see some sort of foreshadowing of a reduction of that, that's intended to be a picture, I think, through common grace of the Lord. I think what's happened, however, is we've utilized these types of things as our, uh, as our hope. So when we think about psychotropic medication, for example, it's now become the savior of people, as if I can't be sane without X, or I can't accomplish this without Y, and uh, that their very existence depends on this one thing. And so I, I think that then becomes dangerous. It becomes a facade not a foreshadowing. It becomes something that hinders their view of the Lord as their ultimate hope for repairing everything that's broken about them uh, and doesn't, doesn't, uh, doesn't allow them, it hinders them to cast their gaze where it belongs. And so I have a lot of cautions about them, um, but I do think there are times at which um, we don't know fully what all they do uh, and how they work sometimes, in some cases, uh, but we do know people express relief uh, and that I rejoice in. I don't, I don't uh, regret that. I don't think that that's a, a bad thing necessarily. Uh, but I do think we have to help people walk through that, to see that this is a, a foreshadowing of relief and not to place our hope there. And I think that's a, just a critical intention, a critical mentality uh, that we maintain even with any type of medical advancement. I think we have to just uh, approach it with caution. It, 
I was going to say, you, you, no, no matter what the medication questions is, Moir, you're, you're going to hear probably a, a different tone. One tone from, from our time together is, this is what God says. This is what he says. And the tone with medication is, what do you think would be best? It's, it's a different category. It's not a moral category. It's not, this is what God says, or this is right and this is wrong. It's not a moral category. It's more of a category, do you think this would be useful? Do you think it would be less useful? And so you don't use the word cautions when you're talking about scripture. This is what God says. But, but this other category of decision-making and a certain kind of wisdom, well, it's, it's a tough question. Should you take it or not? Well, it's, it's tough. Talk to people and talk to people who have used it. Talk to people who hasn't benefited. Talk to people who it has benefited. Talk to physicians. That's, that's, the, way you, that's the way you make sometimes challenging decisions. So we have a different tone. It's, you're going to hear, yeah, maybe it's going to help, maybe it's not, and hope it helps. But there are cautions. We talked a little bit about this today at lunch, but we have physicians here with us. And what would you say to the physician who says, you don't understand, I have 15 or 20 minutes to meet with my patient. I care for them, I want to help them but the only thing I know in this moment to do is to write a script. I've been to this conference, I've heard these things. How do I take what I've heard here and meld that into my practice and yet in light of even what Dale just said, um, there's some tension there for him or her. Thoughts? Yeah, I'll start. I, I think uh, this was helpful for me when, when we had a counseling ministry in our church is um, we had a very good relationship with a local physician. I would encourage a local physician to have a very good relationship with a biblical counseling ministry. Uh, not only do they become wisdom for the biblical counseling ministry, but the biblical counseling ministry also becomes a resource for them. And uh, it was a place where the physician would send people when he, when he knew uh, situations just like that would arise, and he didn't want to just immediately um, cast drugs in their direction. He wanted uh, to see things sorted out. I think that was helpful. Um, a, a second thing that I would I would tell him is uh, number one, what what brought him into this industry is his care and love for people. So uh, don't don't allow that to 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 go. Um, I think that's very important. Uh, maybe a third thing I would say is. Um, Let's begin to read some of the literature that's out there now that I think is, is um, casting <clears throat> a little bit more light on what we know about studies relative to psychotropic medication and the pursuit of uh, psychopharmaceuticals. I think that will be <clears throat> maybe a good place to start uh, in being educated about what, what is coming out. Uh, particularly, really, I don't know, I would say um, middle of the 2000s, up into 2010, and, and really there was a boom in 2013 when the new D DSM came out, where you started to see uh, a massive amount of literature um, that, that hit the shelves relative to um, you know, research in psychopharmaceutical industry. And so <clears throat> a lot more information has come out about that, and so what it may do is, is um, bring pause to a doctor in the way he thinks about holistic care. Um, and not just doing what's been the industry standard for quite some time. And so um, I don't want you to take my word for it. I would want you with your expertise and, and your understanding of the human body and that sort of thing to, to read some of these things uh, to see if, uh, if, if there's any validity to it and, and if it may bring caution in the way that you think of holistically about um, caring for the person.
There was uh, also a number of questions on the demonic as it relates to mental illness. Can you comment a little bit on just the role of the demonic and mental illness? And, and I would just maybe add to that, would you view that differently for believers and unbelievers? The, the passage in the, in the epistles that speaks most specifically about the demonic is Ephesians 6. And, and I think most of us would understand Ephesians 6 as this curious summary of a book. Paul doesn't summarize his other books in that way, so you, know, you wonder how, how did he decide to do that? But what he's doing is he's giving, it's almost like he's saying, I just said a lot. Let me see if I can put it all together for you. And, and so each, each part of the battle garment, he's harking back to the things he's already said within the book, and he's saying, by the way, what, what you've been doing is you've been getting dressed. You've been getting dressed for, for war with the, with, with, the, with, with the garments of Christ. So, so I think with the, maybe put it this way, when we are so committed to try and underst- to understand things, and we are so reluctant to say, I don't know, Oftentimes, when we don't understand things, we say it's a demon. <laughs> and, and, and if, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be, be, um, be a smart aleck, but if, if we see somebody whose head spins 360 degrees while their body is facing forward, it's, it seems to me what we would say is, wow, what happened? <laughs> I do not know what just happened because it looked like you were sta- sitting forward and your head, t- yeah, I'm referring to the exorcist, of course. Um, uh, we... We tend to default to Satan when we don't understand. So I think I, think I don't know is, is probably a safer place to go. That's, so that's safe. The other thing is when we go with what, we, what is clear in Scripture, his devices are, he's a trickster. And, and, and if we see the bizarre, we, we're probably looking for the more ordinary. Um, uh, the, what's the bizarre? Um, person who has unusual reactions when, when you say the word Jesus. Uh, that, would be, that would be the bizarre. If, if somebody's doing that, you, you want to look at the ordinary. And the ordinary is sometimes, is sometimes is simply, by the way, why is it that every time I say the name Jesus, you, you get all jittery? What... What is it about, what, do, what does Jesus evoke? You see, that's, if we immediately go to a satanic interpretation, we won't ask those kinds of normal questions. So Satan has all kinds of, all kinds of devices, but, but it seems as though we, we know them sufficiently to be able to take a stand against him. In the ordinary things, his lies and accusations against us and accusations against the Lord. Yeah, I, I think this is a really difficult issue to parse. I mean, um, I think there's a distinction between the way the demonic influences those who are unbelievers and those who are believers. I don't think that a believer can be possessed by any type of evil spirit in those terms. Um, is there interaction? Yeah, I mean, in the ordinary, as, as Ed describes. Uh, I, think, I think of Lewis in the way that he talks in Screwtape Letters. He's trying to describe um, something that I think is very prevalent in the naturalistic world that we live in. So I'm talking post-enlightenment. So when we think about the world in terms of really a closed system from Darwinian thinking, 
um, Lewis describes in Screw Tape Letters, he says one of the ways that we, we trick them is uh, they don't think that we exist. And I, I think we see that most prevalent in our Western world even today where <clears throat> we do see this demonic influence in, a, in, the, in the ordinary. Uh, when we see in James chapter 1, which is after the passage that I, I just taught through, is uh, Satan lures and entices. So as a believer who James is speaking to, he, he, he can't force us or make us do anything. I think there are some shades of faith uh, and faith teachings in the world today where uh, we want to look... Uh, um, we want to look for a demon around every corner. I think that's faulty thinking. I think it diminishes the impact and the influence of the flesh that we see in the scriptures. Um, but also, I think what we have to be aware of is that there, there is demonic influence. There is a luring and enticing. But he's luring and enticing based upon our own desires as believers. Uh, and and uh, that's where the spiritual warfare happens. Uh, I love the way Piper describes this as... Um, Never live under the facade that we as Christians are at peace because we are always at war. And so that really brings to bear on what it is that we're wrestling with on a consistent basis. Uh, is the bizarre possible for an unbeliever to be possessed? Um, you do see things like that in the New Testament where Jesus encounters the, um, the, the Gadarene. It's a, it's a difficult thing. Can we say with certainty uh, that things like that occur and that they happen. I think those things might be difficult for us to interpret and to describe. Um, as we minister the word, I think something like that can become more apparent. Um, but I, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever encountered a situation uh, like that myself. And um, so I just think we have to be cautious. And I think there is a, a level of mystery here where uh, we're not certain just to what degree that has influence and impact on uh, the bizarre behavior of, a, of an individual. Is it possible? It seems to indicate in Scripture that's possible. Um, but we just have to, I think, rely on the Word and the discernment of the Word and, uh, and wisdom to, to reveal that. So, but, could, please. Were you going to go to a different question or not? Of course not, no. <laughs> I was going to stay on this one. Okay. okay. Uh, things, things change in the way we deal with the demonic when we get to the epistles. You look at Jesus and there's there's all kinds of demonic activity. It does seem to drop off in, in that overt form mm -hmm. once, once you get to the epistles. Uh, where, where in the epistles, the normal mode of ministry is you talk to people, you don't talk to demons. Does that exclude talking to demons? It doesn't exclude it, but, but the emphasis, we would all agree the emphasis in our ministry is we talk to people and the way we do battles, we call people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Perhaps the other thing we would all agree on is if, if we believe that there is something satanic in a person, a believer or an unbeliever, there, there would probably be at least two questions that we would ask. One would be, well, who is Satan? He's a liar and a murderer. And, and those, who, those who he's taken toward himself, they're going, to have those, they're going to have some evidences of that. So the questions would be, tell me where you are guilty. Let's talk about where you are guilty. He is the liar. He is going to condemn. And so you, so you ask, let's use this as an opportunity to confess sins, to bring sins that are hidden. Let's bring them out in the open. The second would be, with whom are you angry? You, you've, you've, you've done a number of things with James 4. And in James 4, the same as Ephesians, where, where when, 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 we're anger, when, when we're angry with another person, that is an occasion for the devil. It's, he's, he's, 
he, he's the divider, Christ is the unifier. And so at least I think we would agree that that would be the second question you ask. And where are you angry? With whom are you angry? Where are there divided relationships in your life? The scriptures have a lot to say about renewing the mind, having the mind of Christ. Um, they think of Psalm 1, Isaiah 26, 3, Philippians 4, 8, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3. I mean, all over the scriptures, we, we, there's this trajectory of the renewing of the mind. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the relationship between the renewing of the mind, the constant renewing of the mind, having the mind of Christ, the, the move in that direction, and the relationship with mental health and mental illness. From the look on your face, I get that, and I know that look, because I wasn't very clear. So. Uh, no, it's not you weren't clear. Was I clear? We just. Okay. That's just looking sort of dumb. That's all. I, I can look dumb if I'm, can I? Um, I, I pulled that off better than I, 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 I guess I was thinking that whether, it, I, was, I was hoping for some specifics to, to, to get the picture just a little bit more clearly. Okay. Um, so let's say someone who has been diagnosed schizophrenic and they are, and they're a believer. Um, they have a clear confession of faith, but they are constantly hearing voices. And these voices are loud and over and often and are telling them things. Mm -hmm. So how, how do we draw lines between that and being renewed in the mind, thinking like Christ? Yeah. Is, is there... Is there a relationship there? Can we, can we draw lines? I think we can. Uh, we talk about somebody who's uh, experiencing the symptoms of schizophrenia and the, the basic underlying description, whether it be something that's auditory or hallucinatory, is, um, is that they're out of touch with reality. Here's the thing that I think we often miss is um, if the way in which that person is perceiving that moment to be true Oftentimes, they're not acting irrational. They're, they're acting according to what they've contrived or constructed as reality or, or what uh, is based on their senses, what they perceive to be reality at that moment. And so, uh, for example, if you're talking to someone who's schizophrenic and, and they start, uh, you're, you're in the room and, and they start speaking to someone that they believe is standing in the corner. Uh, if that person's really standing in the corner and that is reality, uh, for them to be speaking to them is not irrational. But what makes it irrational is uh, at that moment, it's not true. So I think part of what we're trying to do in renewing the mind, we see this teaching in Philippians 4, is to think on things that are true, right, just, noble, of good report. We're trying to help people bring them back to what God has revealed as being true. And true is always relatable, no matter our per perception in the world. You don't have to be schizophrenic to perceive something in the natural world that's not actually true, right? You walk by somebody tomorrow morning, um, they didn't acknowledge you, and you contrived this whole reality as to why they didn't acknowledge you when they just needed to go to the bathroom and they were running as quickly as they could. And, but yet you, you, you respond emotionally, you respond in your thinking based on what you've just contrived to be reality. And so uh, 
our, the, the whole of our job is to help bring someone back to what's revealed to be true and then measure our experiences to that in the scripture. And that's a part of what we're trying to do in renewing the mind that uh, regardless of whether it's um, you know, irrational behavior or emotions that we're trusting in a particular moment, uh, we're trying to help bring them back to what we don't know a lot of things, but we know these things in scripture to be true. So how do we correct what you're perceiving as reality back to what God has grounded in the scripture to be true? And so I'm consistently trying to help that person be grounded in reality. And, and it takes faith to believe that because what their senses are telling them, whether it be you know, their hearing or their sight or <clears throat> their emotions, their feelings, is something different than what they see to be true in the Bible. And so it is a call where I'm asking them to walk by faith based on what God reveals over and against What's, what are very strong forces, our five senses. So that's a part of how I'm trying to help them um, renew their mind is uh, trust the things that scripture says are, are true over and above what they experience. I just think of different people I've known. Sometimes, sometimes the mind is in such chaos that to think a straight thought about Jesus seems impossible. And that doesn't mean that Jesus has abandoned us. It's, we're in his grip because of his grip, not because, not because of our clarity. Sometimes chaos is just chaos. And, and at, the, at, at that time, there's nothing the person can do about it, nor can helpers do anything about it. I think perhaps over the longer term, chaos tends to wax and wane. Sometimes it's more severe, and sometimes the person is a bit clearer. Clear, in that they're able to understand and have a, a more of a cogent conversation. You've mentioned how one of the things, especially in the schizophrenia, is that, is that it, it seems as if you've heard one hallucinatory voice, you've heard a thousand of them. They all sound, they all sound the same. They're, they're all condemning, they're all accusing. And what do you do with that? Well, you can say that it's a satanic voice, and that's it's possible. I think, I think it's probably also the person's, their, their, their person's own sense of themselves that's personified in some way. And so what do we hope to do? There, there's, there you see the ordinary dimensions of a, of a life that is difficult to understand, where the ordinary dimensions is, okay, how can we know that there's no condemnation? We're gonna specialize in this particular section in Romans, and we're gonna illustrate it, we're gonna draw it, we're gonna tell stories about it, this is, this is what we're gonna land, this is the way we're gonna pray for you, is because we think, we think the, the hallucinations are revealing something about, about the way they see themselves. I'm looking at, our, at the clock. I'm gonna give you a chance maybe to repeat, in other, in other words, some things that we've heard tonight, but what do you say to the person here who says, I'm not a counselor? I, have, I, I don't have any training, I don't have time to be trained, whatever that means. How, how do you encourage them when they, if they say, you know, I, I can't help someone who's been diagnosed with, and fill in the blank, depression? Because we, we in the church have been so taught and we've, we've bought into it that that's the professional's job. We, 
you know, we're about, we're about Jesus, but if you have a mental health diagnosis, that's the professional, we're gonna outsource that. How do you encourage that person who says, I'm just not qualified to help my, my friend or my loved one who's suffering? You want me to start? You go ahead. I, you know, I guess two things. One is the person is thinking that that they for some how, somehow they have to to have any legitimacy in talking to the person. They have to be able to give the cure. Well, um, mm-hmm. that's there's something misguided about that. Uh, what do you do with family who's struggling with these things? Well, there's something about love that that it. Our own inadequacies and all the things we don't know, they become just a little bit less important. And, and we just want to go and love the person. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it means just giving them a hug. So, it, 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 the nice thing about love is there's just infinite variety in it. It's, that's, you pray for more love for a person, that, that your love would more than counterbalance your fears of inadequacy. Mm-hmm and concerns that you might do something wrong. The, uh, will you do something wrong? Well, you might. Well, what do you do? It's a collegial environment. You collaborate. If you, you ask the person, have I ever said anything incredibly stupid in the, during our times together? And it's either yes or no. If they say no, then good. If they say yes, then you can ask their forgiveness. And, mm-hmm. and, um, and who would have thought? The grace of God comes in in a, in a, in a way that is, is blatant and, and bright. You know, to have a relationship with somebody who asks your forgiveness, who would have thought? Um, so, so, yeah, we, we want to love more in, in, in the midst of our fears, that's all. Yeah. That's good. Um, I would say, first of all, and this is kind of tongue-in-cheek, but that usually doesn't keep us from giving advice on things we think we know nothing about. Um, so... <laughs> <clears throat> but um, then we ask forgiveness. For yeah, that's that's right. So, <laughs> this is true. Um, I would say first of all, stop thinking about counseling in terms of professionalism. Is uh, counseling revealed in the scripture uh, is is more walking in life with people, and I would say in that regard, you you already counsel, and you you don't even have to speak words to counsel. When someone shares with you something intimate about their life or what's going on, with your body language, you're, you're affirming or denying some of the things that they're saying. And uh, in that, you're, you're helping them process information in one direction or another. I mean, you know how we all, we all do that. We'll float a balloon by somebody just to see if they pop it or not, right? And just to, how are they going to respond? Is this, am I thinking crazy? Like, what's happening? And so we, we all do that in one way or another. <clears throat> so... I think, first of all, as we grow in Christ, we'll, we'll get better at the concepts and the way that we, we think about helping a person. The ways that we grow in Christ, we grow in love. And when we grow in, in, in Christ and we grow in love, we grow in the way in which um, we see people. And what starts to happen then is no longer do you see it as this problem to fix, um, but this situation where you can infuse compassion and the grace and the mercy of Christ. I think sometimes we minimize the, the proactive ability that we have to, to engage in ministry and not just to point out and decry all the things we see as being wrong with a person, uh, but the things that we can do to help uh, encourage. Uh, Ephesians 4 
28 or 29 where it says, let no unwholesome communication proceed from your mouth, only such a word that's edifying that brings grace to the one who hears. So learning to be able to speak, not for yourself, because oftentimes our fear to engage in somebody on that level has everything to do with preserving ourself. We're afraid we're gonna do something that embarrasses us or shows our lack of knowledge or something like that. Well, the scriptures teach us not to speak for ourselves anyway, right? In Ephesians 4, we speak for the, the, the sake of others. And how do we take the, the seasoned salt of scripture uh, and to speak a, a, a right word to this brother in a right time? And I think don't minimize our opportunity to do that. Uh, I also see the beauty of the sphere of influence that God has given you. I think it's interesting that um, in this particular moment, at this particular time, uh, for some reason, God allowed you to have access to this person's heart and life in this way, in a way that I didn't and Ed didn't, uh, but somehow strategically, the Lord in his providence has, has put you there. And so at this moment, at this time, uh, you have an opportunity to speak truth and love, uh, to speak grace and truth to them. Now, it's, it's very obvious, I think, in Scripture that, that some people are gifted in certain ways more than others. It doesn't preclude you from giving advice and being graceful and helping them walk through this difficult time. Sometimes ministry of presence, holding their hand. Uh, and then I would say, to be honest, sometimes it is good. Let's call Pastor Scott. Let's get wisdom on this. How do we, how do we think about this? But not just as in, in terms of passing off, but asking wisdom Pastor Scott, like, can you help us think through this? Because I want to walk with this brother through this, and I'm not exactly sure how to do it. This shows my humility and my weakness and my struggle, but I want to grow in this. So can you help us do that? Can you help us walk through this? And I, I think that's one of the ways that we can engage that way. In a year, we'll be different than we are today. We'll, we'll be more um, mature in the way that we can help people and guide people and think through it. And that's really the process of Scripture. We learn from those who are older and more mature and more wise. Uh, and then that passes down to us so that prayerfully one day what doesn't stop is the ministry of the gospel because long after you're dead and gone and you've poured into other people, uh, you've done the same thing for those who come behind you. So uh, don't, don't minimize those opportunities. I think they're providential, uh, but be wise in the way in which you engage in them and utilize those people in your church that, uh, that have a special interest in it and who do have a love and passion uh, and compassion for people. As, a, as an educator uh, in, in seminaries, uh, one, of the thing, one of the classes that I was involved in was an observation class where I would be the counselor and people would be watching. I don't know how many times I've done that particular course, just scores of times. Every single time, every single time that I've had that course, there have always been comments from the student and they're almost, they're, they're almost the same comment. Uh, but you're just talking to someone. But you're just talking to someone. Now, I, I, I have a bunch of thoughts on that. One is the word just sounds a little critical. Um, but but it, it always leads me to think, I wonder what they were expecting. And they were, what they, I think my students, they were expecting magic. <laughs> That's what they were expecting. They were expecting some sort of, if, if, you know, I know Ed and he has the magic and he will find that key, that perfect passage, that perfect word that will finally unlock and, uh, and solve this particular mystery. But, but ministry is, you're just talking to someone. <laughs> it, looks, it looks fairly ordinary. It's, it's wonderful, it's, it's sanctified conversations, but you're talking with people. 
Well, it has been a sprint for the last two days, for sure. We are, we are grateful that you've been here. Ed, Dale, thank you for your kind, considerate, challenging ministry to us this weekend. While our speakers uh, head down and uh, downstage, let's uh, just thank them, show them our appreciation. Thank you.